Last week, I spoke of how to practice and develop the enlightenment factor of concentration. And it's concentration which in turn leads to the last of the awakening factors, which is equanimity. This mind state of equanimity has extremely far-reaching implications, both for how we live in the world and also for the developing of insights all along the path. And from one perspective, we could say the entire path to liberation unfolds or is supported on the foundation of equanimity, this very powerful enlightenment factor. Now, equanimity is the translation in English of the Pali word upeka. And although upeka in Pali has several different meanings, here it refers to one particular mental factor in a group which in the Abhidhamma are called the universal beautiful factors of mind. The universal beautiful factors of mind. These are a group of mental qualities that always arise together in every wholesome consciousness. So they're qualities like faith or confidence or mindfulness, self-respect, non-greed, non-hatred, pliability of mind, equanimity. So in every wholesome consciousness, all of these qualities and quite a few others, they're always present, they always arise. Now equanimity, as one of these beautiful universal factors, is the particular factor called neutrality of mind. Bhikkhu Bodhi has a very uh, interesting and nice translation, a literal translation of the Pali word for this factor, upeka. He says it could literally be translated as there in the middleness. And the, the unusualness of the English construction I like it because it really points to what it is. There in the middleness. Okay, so the characteristic of equanimity is evenness of mind. And when it's highly developed, when it's well practiced, it manifests as an unshakable balance. It's a mind that's not moved. And it serves to prevent either excess or deficiency of the other factors of awakening. So last week I mentioned Upasaka Ki, the well-known Thai woman lay teacher of the last century. And I talked about her teachings, which she called normalcy of mind. So during this last week I became a little curious about what normalcy of mind, what, what was the word in Thai that that was the translation of? Because again, that's an unusual phrase, normalcy of mind. So I emailed Tan Jeff, who was a Western monk, who translated Upasaka's 
Key's teachings, you know, in her book Pure and Simple. So this is what he wrote in reply when I asked him, well, normalcy of mind, what, what is the Thai word and what is the translation about? So he said, normalcy is a translation for the Thai word pokati. And its usual range of meanings includes ordinary, at equilibrium, and unaffected by events. Upasakaki tends to use it more in the latter two senses. Okay, of equilibrium and unaffected by events. When the mind is at normalcy, it is balanced, neutral, equanimous, and remains unmoved in the face of pleasure and pain. I like that idea of balanced, neutral, equanimous, unmoved in the face of pleasure and pain. The idea of that being normalcy. Right? That's the normal state of mind. And so we can see how this quality of equanimity is actually born from concentration just as it says in the teachings on the natural sequence of the factors of enlightenment. Concentration leads to equanimity. How? When the mind is concentrated, it has the power to keep the mind secluded from the hindrances. When the mind is concentrated, the hindrances are kept at bay. The mind is secluded from them. When the hindrances are not present, then the mind abides quite naturally in this place of equanimity, equanimity, of equilibrium, of normalcy. Now in English, when we speak of neutrality of mind, it might suggest to us a feeling of indifference or disconnectedness. Now when we hear the word neutrality, somehow it might imply to us uh, a withdrawal from experience. But as we begin to explore the many manifestations of equanimity in our lives, we begin to see for ourselves that it's not about withdrawal or indifference at all we really begin to understand why equanimity is called one of the beautiful factors. And as we explore the experience of equanimity further, begin to appreciate that it would be very hard to overestimate its importance. Equanimity plays a key role both in our lives in the world and on the spiritual path. So the first way we experience the cool and restful quality of equanimity is in the peace and balance that it brings to our daily lives. Each one of us is touched by what in Buddhism are called the eight vicissitudes of life. And these eight vicissitudes are the endlessly changing conditions of gain and loss, of praise and blame, 
of fame and disrepute, of pleasure and pain. So these are just the natural changes, natural changing conditions of our lives. When equanimity is developed, we are riding the waves of these changes with balance and with a sense of ease. Without equanimity, when equanimity is lacking, then we're tossed about by the waves and we're, it's like we're crashing in to the changing circumstances of our lives. So we can see the play of gain and loss and their effect on the mind in so many different areas of our experience. Gain and loss. Such a common alteration in our lives. You know, often we think of it in terms mostly of material possessions, you know, of gain or loss, but really it applies in so many other areas as well. We feel the effect of gain and loss whenever we're invested in or attached to a particular outcome. Or we claim any experience as being I or mine. Whenever we're invested in an outcome or take something to be I or mine, gain and loss is going to affect us quite profoundly. So I'll just give a few examples. Just in the world of finances, of money, gain and loss can really be like a mind-altering drug. You know, for many people, whole days can be enjoyed or ruined by the ups and downs of the stock market. You know, gain, feel great. Loss, we feel terrible. We see the play of gain and loss in the complex world of tribal loyalties. And by tribal loyalties, I'm talking about very local tribes or global tribes. If you happen to live in New England, you might feel intensely the vicissitudes of gain and loss every time the Boston Red Sox plays the Yankees. You know, there's a win and you feel elated. There's a loss and you feel dejected. And I've seen this. You know, this is, this is a cultural phenomenon in New England. We can see it now in the intense partisan political dramas that are playing themselves out now. You know, particularly now in an election year. If in your daily life you happen to be following the political news closely, do you notice all the ups and downs of your mental states as the polls change? Or as the events in a campaign affect or influence the standings of the candidate you're invested in? You know, we can get very strongly invested in and identified with a particular person, and then the gain or loss has a tremendous effect on us. And I've seen this. I've seen myself getting sucked in over all these many, many months. 
that it's been going on. It's interesting just to watch the mind in relationship to these changing events. Right here on retreat, the concepts of gain and loss condition our practice. Now, and condition the assessment of ourselves as yogis. We have a calm, concentrated sitting. Thought comes, mm, now I've got it. Gain. And then expecting it to stay. The next day, the vicissitudes hit. Mind is filled with restlessness or boredom. Thought comes, what did I do wrong? How did I lose it? Gain and loss. When this gain and loss is untempered by equanimity, by balance, by being in the middleness of experience, it keeps us in servitude to the inevitably changing conditions of our lives. These conditions will change. It's the nature conditions to change. The vicissitudes happen. With equanimity we're in balance. Without equanimity we're tossed about. So we can also notice the reactions in the mind in the face of praise and blame. This became very obvious to me in a, in a personal way. Uh, just when I finished writing the book One Dharma. And I began, came out, and of course, you know, you put all this energy and time and work into writing a book. Then it comes out, and you start reading the customer reviews on Amazon. So I'd just like to read you a few of them. Praise and blame. Concise. This is all about One Dharma. Concise, enlightening, takes one to the core of Buddhism. I love it. A practical, enlightening book that is a pleasure to read. Then, one Dharma not emerging in this book, not as significant a book as the title might suggest. And then this one is my favorite, my favorite blame <laughs> posting. This is pretty silly stuff. <laughs> well, you've just put all this energy into this work. Praise and blame. So when the book first came out and I was reading these postings, I could feel that my heart and mind would glow at the positive comments and would kind of dim and shrink, you know, in the negative ones. But in watching this, I mean, fortunately, Dharma practice comes to the rescue. And I just reflected on the universal nature of praise and blame. Even the Buddha received both. You know, somebody who had perfected their heart and mind was the object of praise and blame. So I began just to see the humor in the whole situation, which allowed the mind to rest more easily in an equilibrium, in a balance. So the Buddha expressed the unwavering capacity of equanimity in one of the verses from the Dhammapada. 
And it's just a very, very good image of this quality of mind. As a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. You know, to have that steadiness, the mind unmoved. The vicissitudes happen, gain and loss, praise and blame, the mind unmoved. So the third pair of changes of vicissitudes, these inevitable changes in our lives, has to do with fame and disrepute, or renown and disrepute. And these really are just more generalized forms of praise and blame. But there's a great lesson here, and that is even though we may at different times hanker after fame or shrink from disrepute, they really only exist as ideas in other people's minds. They're just, they're just concepts or ideas that other people are holding. If we are well established in the non-remorse of sila, that is, we're well established in that sense of well-being in ourselves, we can be, remain quite unmoved and equanimous in the face of all these external projections. Fame and disrepute don't mean much because it's just ideas in people's minds if we are at ease with ourselves. So the last pair of changes is the alternation of pleasure and pain. We could say happiness or sorrow in our lives. Now for most of us, there is a very deep conditioning in the mind to hold on to what is pleasant and to push away or avoid what is unpleasant. But it is precisely this conditioning, this very deep conditioning, holding on to the pleasant, pushing away or avoiding the unpleasant, it is this condition which powers the roller coaster of hope and fear in our lives. As long as this condition is working, so we keep hoping for the pleasant, we keep fearing the unpleasant, through the wisdom that comes from wise attention in our lives and in our practice, we begin to see that these changes of pleasure and pain, of happiness and sorrow, that the changes are inevitable, that they're not a mistake. It's not that the pleasant feelings go away because we did something wrong. It's simply the nature of all conditioned things to change. It's amazing that it's so hard for us to really get this. Years ago, I was teaching at... uh, a wilderness retreat, it's called Vallecitos, it's in the Carson National Forest in New Mexico. It was a retreat um, for social activists. We were teaching the retreat, and then on the last day we went for this hike, there's a river through through the ranch. We went on a hike along the river, and on the way back, it had, it had rained previously, and the rocks were slippery, and I just slipped on a rock. Uh, and 
I landed and it's like my knee hyperextended. And I was able to walk back, you know, to the to the lodge. And I was giving a talk that night and I had the thought, Joseph, better not sit cross legged. But I ignored the thought. So I sat down, gave the talk, and an hour later I couldn't stand up. I had really done my knee in. Couldn't put any weight on it at all. I had to be carried back to the cabin, which was a little embarrassing. And for many hours that night, my mind was just berating myself for being so careless on the rocks. And then I was thinking of the future. I had a whole busy summer schedule of teaching. You know, how was I going to manage with the knee? And then at a certain point, just my mind shifted into the place of understanding and acceptance. And it was expressed in a mantra that came to my mind, which I have since used many, many times, and it's been very helpful to me. The little, the little mantra that came to the mind is, anything can happen anytime. Just anything can happen anytime. Why? Because conditions keep changing. Now we hear that anything can happen anytime and you might think, oh, well that would make one very fearful or paranoid. You know, we have to be defensive. But it's actually just the opposite. When my mind came to that place of understanding, it relaxed. It relaxed into an acceptance, into an openness. It was just an acknowledgement of the truth of these changes. Anything can happen anytime. Relax, be open. We can have equanimity. These are another few lines from the Buddha. He said, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, come and go like the wind. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. And I love these nature images, to rest like a great tree or a rock unmoved by the wind. You know, it, it just is an expression of the tremendous strength and stability of this factor of equanimity. It's a very powerful mind state. So the first type of equanimity is the evenness and composure in the midst of life's changes. The second way equanimity manifests is as the fourth of the Brahma-viharas. Those mind states called the divine abodes of loving-kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy, and the fourth is equanimity. Now in this mode, equanimity as a Brahma-vihara, the great gift of it is that it allows us to look upon all beings equally, free from discrimination, free from prejudice, free from preference. It's equanimity that keeps us unmoved in the face of those who praise us, those who blame us, all the while remaining able to seek the benefit of all. This is the gift of equanimity, this impartiality towards all beings. 
So as one teaching on this, this is from one of the suttas in the Middle End sayings, and I find this teaching very uh, helpful because it applies so much in our daily life situation. So the Buddha is addressing the bhikkhus, which in the context of our retreat here, we're, we're all bhikkhus practicing for liberation. Bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh. Now just as I'm reading this, just imagine people addressing you in these ways. You know, so you really have a vivid sense of what the Buddha is talking about. People may address you either timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. The Buddha is saying people will address us in all these different kinds of ways. Here in bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. How well are we able to do that? In the face of speech coming at us, true or untrue, harsh or gentle, with intent to harm or intent for our welfare. What's the What's the quality that makes possible abiding in evenness, remaining unaffected, abiding compassionate for their welfare? The quality of mind that allows for that is precisely equanimity. The mind not affected, the mind there in the middleness, just resting in evenness, Aware, mindful, oh, this is this kind of speech, this is that kind of speech. We're not moved by it. Very powerful training. We can begin to see how impartiality, which is the nature of equanimity, that's really... Uh, the very nature of this mindset. It's just impartial. It's like space. It holds all things equally. It's this aspect of impartiality which enables the other Brahma-viharas to be boundless. This is the gift of equanimity to metta, to compassion, to appreciative joy. Because the mind is impartial, it embraces all. So it makes these other Brahma-viharas boundless. We can see this at work watching how people like Deepama or the Dalai Lama who've developed this to such a great extent, just how they relate to people. You know, there's one story of His Holiness. He was at a conference, this was years ago, you know, in some big hotel, I think it was in Phoenix. And as he was leaving, he asked the hotel, hotel management just to call together all the workers in the hotel, had them line up, 
so that he could greet every single worker of the hotel. I thought that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Not very common, you know, but in a heart and mind like the Dalai Lama, it's like all beings are equal. There's an impartiality. He wasn't there just for the people at the conference. He was embracing all. And Deepama was like this. It's just that heart of unconditional love. It's like whoever came into her presence, it was just like being blessed. There were no conditions. There wasn't, there wasn't a holding back. This is how somebody described Deepama. They had gone to see her in Calcutta. And described being hugged by Deepama, and there's a quote, so thoroughly that all my six feet fit into her great, vast, empty heart with room for the whole of creation. It's just such a beautiful image of the great, vast, open, empty heart with room for all of creation. What makes that boundless quality possible? The boundless quality of metta. What makes it possible is equanimity, is impartiality. So you see how it just suffuses you know, all these other uh, divine abodes. It's as if people like His Holiness or Deepama or others, you know, who have developed this to a great extent, that they're just living there in the middleness of things. You know, they're just there. They're in the middleness of loving kindness, of of compassion, of appreciative joy. And abiding there, they touch everyone they meet. So that's the beauty and the power of this quality. So there's equanimity as balance in the vicissitudes of life. There's equanimity as the impartiality of the divine abodes, which is the quality then to embrace all beings. The third manifestation of equanimity takes us deep into the experience of meditative awareness. And this is the wisdom aspect of equanimity, which is beautifully expressed and very succinctly expressed in the famous opening lines of the third Zen ancestor, you know, in his great treatise on the faith mind. And this is what he wrote. He said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When like and dislike are both absent, the way everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, who are abiding in equanimity. When we practice the great way, that is non-preferential awareness, impartial 
to whatever arises. This supports the development of all the factors of enlightenment. And as they become strong, we develop deeper and deeper insight into what the Buddha called the three characteristics of experience. When like and dislike are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. It's such a direct teaching. You know, when there's equanimity in mind, in the mind, impartiality in the mind, everything becomes clear. And we begin to see on deeper and deeper levels the nature of these characteristics. We begin to know the truth of change not only as a conceptual understanding, but in the very direct experience of things arising and passing away. And sometimes we experience this arising and passing on a more macro level, but increasingly, as our practice deepens, we experience the arising and passing away on an increasingly refined momentary level, micro level. As we are attuned to this moment-to-moment changing nature, arising and passing away nature of all phenomena, at a certain point in that momentum, when the experience of change becomes so clear, then our practice shifts and what is happening becomes less important than the process of change itself. It's as if we shift from the level of content to the level of process. The mind starts to focus on the process of change and that's what we are mostly aware of. With equanimity, with the mind of no preference, we begin to experience the truth of dukkha, the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena. Now we begin to see the continual dissolution, the dissolution of everything that arises. And at certain times we can see the dissolution of consciousness itself. There's no place left for the eye to take a stand. Everything is just arising and passing, vanishing, dissolving. There are many stories in the suttas, in the Buddha's discourses, of people getting enlightened just by hearing this one teaching. So I'll just say it again. This is your chance. (laughs) Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And the Buddha said this so many times in the discourse. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. What would it be like if we really let this in? Whatever has the nature to arise, which is everything in our experience, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. If our understanding were complete, if we could really let this in, we wouldn't hold on to anything. Holding on wouldn't make sense. 
So with the great power of equanimity we are attuned to the arising and passing away more clearly, to impermanence, to the unreliability of phenomena. And we experience with greater clarity the truth of selflessness when we see that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. We see that all phenomena are simply arising out of appropriate conditions. They're insubstantial, they're empty of any inherent self-existence. All phenomena are like a rainbow. Now what's a rainbow? A rainbow is an appearance arising out of certain conditions of light and moisture and air. Conditions come together, there's an appearance of a rainbow. A rainbow is not a substantial thing. It's an appearance. All phenomena are like a rainbow. Appearances arising out of appropriate conditions. They're both vivid. We see the rainbow clearly. So it's a vivid experience and at the same time completely insubstantial. As each of these insights mature, the insight into impermanence, into the unreliability, into selflessness, as they mature, we go through various stages. And in some of these stages, the mind is filled with a very exhilarating rapture. And this is a time when the mind first sees very clearly and sharply the momentary arising and passing of things. You know, when we've cultivated the mindfulness and really see rising and passing very quickly, very strongly, it's like a whole new world opens up and there's this tremendous rush of rapture. It's like we're beginning to see things truly for the first time. As we stay with the practice, there can come a sense of tremendous clarity, understanding more deeply what is really the path and what is not the path. That is, we see that as wonderful as that rapturous feeling was, holding on to that is not the path, that the path is not holding on to anything. So we don't cling to these special experiences that may arise. And as we just continue, you know, in the path of awareness, deepening our insight into impermanence, into dukkha, into selflessness, sometimes we go through periods of what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. There are some interesting parallels in the different spiritual traditions. In inside practice, we can go through periods of profound distress, seeing that nothing at all in conditioned existence can provide a true and lasting happiness. Now, we may know this conceptually, you know, and yeah, that makes sense, but it's when we're in the middle of it, when we're really in the middle of seeing 
the dissolution and unsatisfactoriness on this very momentary, energetic way. So we go through feelings of distress and fear. You don't feel very happy at that time. But if we persevere, if we keep on developing equanimity in the face of these experiences also, we reach what is the culmination of meditative insight. And this is the powerful state of equanimity in relationship to all formations. The mind reaches a place, if we've persevered along the path, where it comes to rest in this balance, this equanimity about whatever it is that's arising. And this is a state of profound delight born of peace. Here the mind is not disturbed at all by the alteration of pleasant and unpleasant experience. It's just abiding in equanimity. There's a Thai monk, Ajahn Jamnian, who described this place very well. He said, at some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. Once one ceases to focus on any particular content and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own, a perfect balance of mind, with no reactions, there is no longer any doing. So this stage of stable equanimity, it's actually likened to the mind of an arhant, the mind of a fully enlightened being, unshakable with regard to anything that arises in the field of consciousness. So we can get to take, we're not actually our hunts yet, but at this place of equanimity, we get a taste of it. We get, we get a feeling for what that quality of liberation would be like. It's a taste of what the Buddha repeated many times in the Satipatthana Sutta, where he said, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. You know, when I read those lines or hear those lines, I I feel them as so joyous. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. What an amazing place of freedom. (coughs) So Sayadaw Upandita used a more colloquial example, you know, of this experience of equanimity about formations. He said it's like driving a luxury automobile on an untrafficked freeway on cruise control. <laughs> so that's the nature of experience, you know, in this place of balance. 
At this point, the equanimity has balanced all the other factors, and so the practice is just rolling on by itself. There's nothing more to do. Okay, so there's the equanimity in the face of life's changes, of vicissitudes. There's the equanimity of the Brahma-viharas, that quality of all-embracing impartiality. There's the equanimity of meditative wisdom. Through the development of insight, we come to this place of balance, of equanimity, with regard to all formations. The fourth kind of equanimity that I'll mention very briefly is the last of the paramis. And these are the qualities that a bodhisattva, a being aspiring to Buddhahood, has to bring to perfection, you know, and develops to perfection over the course of many lifetimes. And it's these same paramis or perfections that are developed in us all to a lesser extent on our own path of liberation. So just as a reminder of what these paramis are, there's a quality of generosity and morality and renunciation and wisdom and diligence and patience and truthfulness, resolve or resoluteness, loving-kindness and equanimity. So this is quite a collection of beautiful qualities. Out of these, out of these ten paramis, two of them are the mainstay of all the others. And the two that are the foundation of all the others are patience and equanimity. Lady Sayadaw, who I've mentioned before, one of the great Burmese monks who lived in the beginning of the 20th century, He wrote that only when we have set ourselves up with these two, patience and equanimity, can we expect to fulfill the rest. So it just gives a sense of how important this quality of equanimity is. It's the basis for all of the other paramis. It's what empowers the other factors of enlightenment, gives us balance in our lives. So the question then is, how can we develop it and strengthen it in our practice? How do we actually practice equanimity? There are a few succinct teachings which describe how equanimity can be developed just in our daily lives. And the well-known example, which I like a lot, is in one of the teachings of Ajahn Chah. You know, and it's said that at a certain point, he was with his group of students, and he held up a cup, and he said, the proper way to relate to this cup is as if it's already broken. doesn't mean we don't take care of the cup. It doesn't mean we don't use the cup. It doesn't mean we don't wash it when it's dirty. 
But if we relate to it as if it's already broken, we're not attached to it. When it changes, when it breaks, as it inevitably will, the mind remains in equilibrium. So can we relate to all things as if they've already changed, as if they've already broken, as if they've already disappeared? That's a way of reminding ourselves, yes, in the face of whatever's arising, it's pleasant, it's not pleasant, it's going to change. If we remind ourselves of this, it's already broken, it's already gone, it's already disappeared, then we attune to this place of evenness and equanimity in ourselves. There's another teaching which I have found very powerful in my life. When I came across it when I was still in college studying philosophy, I was taking a course in Eastern philosophy and was reading the Bhagavad Gita. And this was the first time I had read it and even come into any contact with Eastern teachings. And there was one line in that text which just jumped out at me even then. I was 18 or 19 years old. The line in the Bhagavad Gita, which had such impact, it said, to act without attachment to the fruit of the action. to act without attachment to the outcome. So this means we can give our full energy to doing something and do it as fully and completely and impeccably as possible. But can we do it without attachment to the fruit? Because so many conditions outside of our control will condition what happens. We cannot control the outcome, no matter how fully engaged we are or what our commitment is. So we do everything fully. We are completely engaged without attachment to the outcome. So then we're really bringing this quality of equanimity into the midst of our lives, into the midst of our engagement. Very powerful, freeing aspect. And then a teaching uh, of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, which is so counter to our cultural conditioning. And he said, the value of an act is not measured by its success or failure, but by the motivation behind it. And so we don't measure the fruit of our actions by its success or failure. We're not attached to that. We're really measuring it by the quality of our motivation. That's something that is within our power. That's within our domain. So all of these cultivate this quality of equanimity in the midst of action, in the midst of our engagement with the world. The Buddha talked of how the enlightenment factor of equanimity is strengthened by associating with wise, equanimous people. Kind of in the text, it has a very uh, pointed remark. It says, avoid those people who go crazy. (laughs) And we know people have impact on our own states of mind. I mean, you don't have the experience now, but I don't know when you're at home, whether you ever watch these political news shows, these panels, where these commentators are screaming at each other, they're just shouting, you know, to, 
overpower the other panelists. And you watch these and listen to these, and you just feel the, the energetic impact of associating with people who are not equanimous. You know, it's not helpful in the support of this particular mental quality. Of course, we might consider watching these shows just as an advanced practice. You know, okay, I'm going to watch this and I'm going to really practice staying there in the middleness. Okay, so associating with balanced, wise, equanimous people. We can develop equanimity as one of the Brahma Viharas. Just as we practice metta, there is a specific meditation to develop equanimity. And the very classical phrase that's used is actually a little difficult for people to resonate with often. So the classical phrase is if we're directing it to all beings, all beings are the heirs of their own actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes. So sometimes people hear that and it just, you know, maybe they feel it's a little cold. All beings are the heirs of their own action. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes. But when it's held in the right way, and this is, this is really how I practice it, I see that expression as the gift of wisdom to whoever I'm directing it towards. It's like saying, yes, I may have all the metta and all the compassion that's possible, and still your happiness will depend on your own actions. So it's like we're offering a gift of understanding. We're offering, offering a gift of wisdom. And that's done with this great impartiality. It's really a, a manifestation, an expression of this great equanimity. This is the wisdom aspect of equanimity. And in our insight practice, equanimity comes about through wise attention and continuous mindfulness. Because what does mindfulness mean? It means being aware of what's arising without attachment, without aversion. When mindfulness is present, equanimity is automatically there. All these universal, beautiful factors arise together. And lastly, as a way of developing equanimity, it's remembering to incline the mind towards it. So we remind ourselves, incline towards equanimity. And sometimes there's a little act of renunciation here because we're renouncing the lesser happiness of excitement and thrills and rapture for the deeper and more profound peace and happiness of this quality of equilibrium, this quality of equanimity. It's a mind that is imperturbable, a mind that is balanced, and it's with an impartiality 
that embraces all beings, all experience. Now, and the Buddha summed it up very well when he said, there is no higher happiness than peace. So this is the nature of this very powerful and beautiful mind state, this awakening factor of equanimity. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When likes and dislikes are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.